where we have the most potential to really change people's lives is when it's unexpected and you just get blown away. It's never a yes or no is like what I've learned a lot of times. When you have the image in your brain and you can see it, you, it's never gonna do you wrong. And I really like that. Hello, and welcome to the Theatre Art Life podcast, sponsored by ClearCom. ClearCom are the leader in voice communications for theatre and the performing arts. They are relied upon from the Broadway stage to the West End to Cirque du Soleil. ClearCom brings seamless communication solutions to your stage. The Theatre Art Life podcast puts the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world, the culture creators and the backstage masters. My name is Anna Robb. And my name is Anna Aguilera. Today we're talking to Houston Adam. Houston is a circus director and producer from Jamestown. He became involved in the arts at age nine when he started juggling. Since then, he's developed a passion for circus creation and founded the Activate Entertainment Project amidst the pandemic in October of 2020. Since then, Activate has presented 35 performances, ranging from large outdoor events, pop-ups, and full-length creations, all with the mission of providing meaningful live performances that are accessible to the public while empowering artists of all backgrounds and disciplines. Houston, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So tell us, juggling started early and that was the beginning of your career in performing arts. So from juggling, what was your trajectory into the, the entertainment world? You know, I remember seeing a juggler when I was probably about nine and it was just one of those things that as a kid you see and you think, oh, I'm going to learn to do this. And then, you know, somehow I just never stopped once I learned, <laughs> like there was never an end point for me. Um, so it really did carry me through my entire kind of childhood all the way up until you know, I wanted to go to college. And at the same time, when I was also that young, I had been exposed to circus for the first time. And it was actually my first live show. So before I ever saw a musical or a play or anything else, I saw La Nuba in Orlando. And that was the thing that I think set the bar for me and what I wanted to do, um, which is a high bar to set. <laughs> and so when I was sort of deciding what I wanted to do with my life, I, I knew that, you know, performance was not really the thing for me, but I also wanted to be involved in the creation or operation of circus. And so I applied to a few different schools, but only one art school, and that was for stage management. And that's what I ended up going with. And then that set me on an even different trajectory to get more into um, creation. So I went into school really only thinking about the operation side. And then it was within school that people had kind of talked to me and given me hints and notes that like I could do something more than just, you know, operate. And, and if it, that was something that I wanted. And so it did end up being something that I wanted and the opportunities kind of presented themselves to work on little creations and do a little bit more. And then when the pandemic hit, I think it was my, you know, big leap of faith to just go for it. So I'm very sort of grateful for that, actually. <laughs> and when does set design come in? You know, it's really funny. I it's I've had such a weird like school career and that I spent a year and a half doing stage management and studying stage management. Um, and then about halfway through, I, I really knew that I wanted to focus on something creative and like really learn more about my creative process and in general, the creative process. And so I decided to switch my major midway through school to uh, scenic design. And that, I think, really has pushed me as an artist to think different and to kind of understand the entire 
production process from start to finish. So I'm kind of very grateful for that skill set. Um, and it's kind of added to my weird, eclectic uh, range of skills of doing everything from like graphic design to set design to just being able to draft up something if I need to uh, for a pitch, you know. And so it's been really helpful. And somehow I feel like the you know, touching on all these different subjects has really provided me with the perfect skill set. And I don't know, somehow I got really lucky with that. So I'm, I'm super grateful for all of these uh, different experiences within different, completely different majors and programs. I really like that because, um, you know, I'm a full believer of, of, especially when you're young, dancing around all of the disciplines within a, a, the artistic realm, because one, you get to find out what you really like. And then also what you're really good at and then whatever you go into master you also have knowledge and awareness of the other streams because you danced around them at all so um you said that you you leaned up to you know the pandemic which i think was the beginning of your activate entertainment project so what was the impetus for the beginning of that where did that idea come from and then tell us what what that is it's, it's really funny, actually, because I had been just starting to apply for school grants at the time, and I had just received some grants from our, our university. And those grants were to go to Montreal and to become a little bit more involved in the circus scene there, um, to do shadowing, a, a more extensive shadowing period with a large show. And when that all fell through, I really didn't know what to do. Uh, but I had this pool of money that I had to use, and I really wanted to find a way to use it. And so what I ended up doing is connecting with a, a friend of mine now, Dr. Joe Culpepper, who was a researcher or is a researcher right now um, for the National Circus School. And he was a fellow at Cirque du Soleil pre-pandemic working on some projects with them. And he has this great skill set of, of knowing kind of all about performance history. And so I went to him and said, hey, like, I want to develop the idea for something, and I want to do, like, an independent study with you because I have this grant. And we didn't even know what the goal was of the grant. So uh, we were kind of just finding our way through it. And kind of week one or two, we established, okay, I want to figure out a way to work with circus artists and give circus artists work during the pandemic. Like, how can we make this happen? Because nobody was working at the time. And so he really was the one that got me to look a lot at history, a lot at books, uh, using that as the the answer to the future, not necessarily all of the new technology like Zoom and digital format for shows. He was like, just look back at what people in in you know history did uh, when there were hardships or times when they couldn't do what they normally um, would be able to, and that really got me looking into like some of the history of like nomadic performance and you know even in the early 20th century when circus wasn't you know, quite able to do its uh, same thing. Like, how did it break down and, and still reach the masses? And really what we found is that um, we could take our performance to the public rather than have the public come to us. And so that was the basis of the idea behind the company. It was that plus giving artists work. So I think, you know, I had this great idea and I had a nice pitch and I sent it off to somebody and I had a meeting, but it wasn't the right group for it. And a couple months went by and I was just kind of got tired of having this idea in my head. So I decided I was going to hire three artists. We were going to make a show, a piece, like a 15 minute, no longer. And we were just going to go and perform it all around our city for free five times in one day. And, you know, it was on Halloween in 2020, October 31st. And I remember like 
we had an amazing hand balancer, Kyle Craigle, who had come from Vegas to, uh, to perform. Um, and then two local artists, one of classical violinists and one a contemporary dancer. And when we went to perform this piece in our little North Carolina town, we had people who were, you know, had probably never seen anything in the arts that were crying and just telling us how much this meant to them um, and how they've never seen anything that's touched them so much. And I think that was the, the like really the start of something way, way more. And so for me, that's kind of why I'm, you know, grateful for that period of the pandemic, because it allowed me to really think of something that I would have never thought of and leap into something that I never would have done had it not happened. Um, and now, since I've graduated, it's been my full-time job and life, and, and I'm just kind of here for the ride, uh, which is really awesome. That's super cool. How, where were you performing it when you went around the town? Like, was it on the street? Was it in a location? Oh. Like <laughs> Yeah, we were, we were, it was kind of crazy. And I do love that it was born on the street, but it's all, most of them were outdoor locations. We did a gallery, like an indoor art gallery where they live streamed the piece, but it also had uh, the ability to have some in-person audience. We did a park, like the middle of a public park downtown. And we did two breweries that had like a nice outdoor patio. Cause that was where people were going uh, to sit and drink and chat. Like we were allowed to back then. Um, and so that was the place where we said, well, there's going to be 50 people or a hundred people here. So let's go there. And that really was our, our key. And it was really fun to have people watch a performance where they didn't expect to see one. And it was a fine line between, we didn't want to be too in their face because they also didn't ask for a performance from us. <laughs> um, but it was, I think it worked out well in the end and we did it in a, such a way where, you know, the people that wanted to watch us watched us. And I think that was what was important then. Do you have like a different, well, you said the brewery, you knew there were going to be people, but uh, like, is there a different spirit or feel to each of the different locations or is just street performance is street performance? There always is. We've since done probably 25 other performances outside on the street and they've all been so, so different. Um, it's really always surprises me. And I think that's one of the challenges of working outside in such a public place, because as of recent, as of last year, we were doing a residency in a, a large park in downtown Greensboro, North Carolina. And we have this big performing arts center across the street from us. And we were performing with, uh, some of the best artists in the world, frankly. And it was so interesting to see how you know, because of the anonymity of the streets, people would walk from the parking deck to the Performing Arts Center to go watch a show, you know, that they paid probably hundreds of dollars for. And but a lot of them wouldn't realize what was happening around them, you know, and that there was these artists. And so I think that was it's something that I've noticed that for me is it's just in a really intriguing sort of idea and concept. And I think for me as a creator, it's allowed me to like really push my work, but also you know, notice the differences in audiences and how we can maybe engage some of those people or, you know, are any of those people, the people we want to engage. And, and it's just a lot of questions that it brings up for me. But I do love the work because I think it's a little bit more challenging than when people are sitting, waiting, ready for you to perform. It's like they're not even expecting you. So how do you get them to really do the same thing that they would if they paid for a ticket? the challenge <laughs> i mean it's it's super interesting and also like in in today's world where i think the 
the tendency to to take uh, entertainment through gaming or TV or on-demand stuff, you know, to take it to the streets and get in their face as opposed to waiting for them to show up at a theatre is, is an interesting thing and, 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 and maybe potentially the the future of where live entertainment goes because we're we're all in uncharted territory post-pandemic tell us about like you started this in the pandemic and that probably had a certain construct but now that you're out of the pandemic what does activate entertainment look like now and 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 what 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 decides what you do and where you do it and and how you do it yeah that's a really great question um because we're figuring that out as we speak you know every day is is something new we we had been really, really lucky to perform and pay, you know, really great artists to, to do work outside for free and to the public for free. And that has been a huge, like, driving factor behind my my work. But we got to a point where, at least in our local um, community, and that includes, I'm not just talking about our city, but I mean, kind of the United States as a whole, it's a really tough business model for people to pay for a large scale performance that there is virtually no money coming in from the event. Um, meaning like there is economic impact and that's another thing we're really focusing on right now, but there's not a ticket being sold that somebody can say that they made that money off of. And that's a really tough sell for us. So we started back last year and I was actually working with, um, who's been an amazing mentor for, of mine, Richard Dagenet, who, was really getting me to work on my strategic planning. And one of the things that we decided was we really need to start venturing into, you know, shows and work that can generate some revenue so that the company can sustain. And and so we did our first full length indoor theatrical project in February. Um, and that was a 75 minute indoor contemporary circus show uh, called Solstice, a winter circus experience, which was less based around the holidays and more about the idea of memory and as it relates to winter and the idea of snowfall. And that was a huge success for us. And we really realized that people, there is a value to our work that people are willing to pay for. But at the same time, we were able to still offer free performances for homeschool children and and other school kids that was kind of fulfilled our mission. Um, But as we move into the future, the way that we're navigating this post-pandemic path is really like diversifying all of our projects so that we cover all of our grounds. So we have right now Solstice is, is being booked for like small touring uh, venues early next year, as well as coming back to, to our city. And at the same time, we're doing a big outdoor project this uh, August slash fall. That's going to be bigger than the one that we did last summer. And it's going to be a free open air outdoor event. That's going to really promote the local music scene. Uh, in our city. So it's really there to kind of go back to what we were doing last year, which is give like a really nice big performance for thousands of people to come and see for free. And then our smaller projects that we have other than that are doing smaller creations, taking them to festivals and other things like that, uh, as well as we're starting to present other artists' work. Um, And that's something I'm really excited to get into is finding small circus artists that have developed their own creations and bring them in. So it's a, it's a mix between these projects that are really there to generate some revenue, but also give work to artists and provide a different experience for our public. And also to make sure that we can still maintain that idea that we do want to go out on the street and we do want to make a fuss and we do want to give people something that they just never expected they would see. Cause I think that's the, where we have the most potential to really change people's lives. 
is when it's unexpected and you just get blown away. And now a note from our sponsor. The Theatre Art Life podcast is proud to be sponsored by Clearcom. Clearcom is the leader in voice communications for theatre and the performing arts, relied upon from the Broadway stage to the West End to Cirque du Soleil, bringing seamless communication solutions to your stage. You can find them at clearcom.com. Go check them out. And I have two questions like I do sometimes. (laughs) The one is... Do you think that starting with the smaller street performances have built your local audience to then go and have a sold out show later on a year or two later that when you presented it? Do you think there's like a building audience component and educational component to that? You know, I I wish I could say yes, but my our branding was so bad in the beginning that nobody knew who we were. <laughs> and you know, I don't think that's a bad thing. Because one of the things that I really appreciated about being where we are is that, you know, when we've done these performances on the streets in the beginning, I had only maybe done a, a, you know, piece or two that I had directed. Um, And so it allowed me to really take a lot of risks artistically that I wouldn't have taken if I knew people were paying for a ticket and coming to watch our show. I think now that we've had that experience where people have put their email in, paid for a ticket, follow us on social media those bigger events that we've really put ourselves way more into the forefront of like, you know, the press and, and marketing, those have been the things that I think have built our audience. But I think people can tell that we've been in the community. And I think that's because we've like learned about the community. We know the public. So I think in a way there is a subconscious building of an audience, but uh, I think literally it's, it's maybe not what I would have thought back, you know, two years ago um, when I started. But maybe it's not the fact of, the fact of them knowing you, but the fact of them being exposed to an experience that they wouldn't have before, right? Like maybe now the kid already saw a little circus thing. Maybe now they're willing to go and see or pay for a show, even if it's not the same person or the same experience. Yeah, no, I think so. And I think that's one of the the beauties of the work on the street is because you have the potential to change somebody's mind. Um, And I think it's because you're not trying to necessarily but because they have their own ability to watch something from afar and make what they will of it. And, you know, it's, it's great. I mean, the story I keep, I can never forget is our first show when we started to perform in this, it was our last location of the day. We had these people and I remember watching the the piece and as it started, we had this violinist and this dancer. And I remember hearing uh, these two older sort of like, you know, older guys at the bar talking and they were like, oh, it's supposed to be art. They're supposed to be like, you know, it's supposed to have meaning, you know, and they were kind of uh, picking fun at the beginning of the piece. And what I thought was like the funniest part was at the very end, 10 minutes later, those are the ones crying and coming up to me and saying, I've never in my whole life seen anything like this. And that was where I thought, okay, this has some potential. And this format in particular is something that could actually change people's perception um, of what we do. And that's, I, I'll never forget that story. <laughs> I mean, what, how fulfilling is that? I mean, it's a really amazing. What, what, what was it about that piece that was moving for them did, that you, that you, that you perceived that them to, to be touched by that? There was an image to the piece that honestly, I really wish I could go back to. I, I didn't realize at the time that maybe environmentally, this is not a, as, you know, it, it, we shouldn't have done, but we, we let a balloon go 
Um, and so the piece was about childhood. Um, and so the piece started off with two characters who were kind of having playing a game over a balloon of who could grab it first. And we had the violinist kind of narrating this game. They were, it was all fun and games until the balloon actually accidentally like flew away. And that was a moment where everybody started, they stopped and they were like, okay, what's happening? And then it delved into this really intense, dramatic, like sort of score. It was a classical piece uh, for violin that we reworked. And that kind of led this whole path. And at the end, these two characters come back together and they find there's another balloon that they find. And it's the decision for both of them to then hold this together and let it go on their own. So it's how in the beginning we repeat the same image, but under a different context. And I have no idea how they came up with that image, but it really read, it said everything that needed to be said about what we wanted to say. And at the end, when we let the balloon go at the end, people would just watch that thing go out into the sky for seven or eight minutes, you know, and it was really magical because we had built their attention to do that. Yeah, there was some sort of level of not knowing what we were doing that I think made that piece the most authentic it could have been, <laughs> um, which I'm a little jealous of now. <laughs> that's it. That's, that's beautiful, though, to see those moments where you, the beautiful accident, right? Like where you like, you have the idea, but it's and not until it resonates with an audience that you know that it's hit its mark. And, and the fact that you did that you know, out of the gate, it's pretty, pretty, pretty exceptional. Um, Anna, you had a second question though, right? I'm, I'm interrupting. Uh, yeah, but it's a little bit related, but not because you're changing the format of, or kind of trying to stick and find a way to, I guess, make it sustainable. So how has your funding or how do you actually make it happen? Like it started with a grant and like, I mean, you don't have to tell us all the ins and details, but like a little bit of what goes into funding grassroots theater and then how that evolves. Yeah, it's been, I've somehow found my way into a really great, I, I won't call it a loophole because it's really not, but it's a, I think a system that, you know, is probably one of the best things in the U.S. that we can do, that we have access to, which is using a partner as our fiscal agent to really help us access funding that most only nonprofits have access to. And so every project we do at this point we really do partner with another organization who ends up coming in with us to maybe help us market, or maybe they're just there to help us, you know, get the funding we need. And they, you know, are able to, they have the team and the infrastructure to, you know, write the checks and send out the money to the artists that on our end, we're only having to deal with the creation and the producing side, uh, minus all of the legal and tax sort of things that you would have to do when you're hiring 20 people. Um, and so, I think the way that that came about was, you know, at first we had had a point in the company where I was unsure what to do. And I remember sitting, it was in December and I was sitting in my bedroom and I was going, okay, I've got to find some money for something. Um, and I literally called up foundations <laughs> and I, which you're not supposed to do, but I did anyways. Um, and I was very nice and I said, I'm not really asking for money, but we did this performance and it was so, it was something about it that was so incredible. And I just have to do it again. Like, I don't know how, but I'm like looking for a little help. And I had one foundation that was like, we would fund, you know, we'd give you money. And I was a little like, Oh, you know, I'm not, that's, I didn't know what to say, but they ended up helping me partner with other organizations. They were like, we know of all these people that you could fit really well within. And so they ended up connecting me. And through that, you know, 
they started to kind of tell me, well, we can give you money if you're partnering with people that can take our money. And I was like, oh, this makes sense because, you know, we were at the time, I was just an individual um, rather than like an established LLC. And so, you know, at the time it was really kind of a difficult thing for somebody to just give you money. But we've been really lucky in that, you know, we've always had a project to pitch and always something ready and just kind of go out there and see if somebody bites, you know, and it's been a really, um, really fun experience. And I think like learning the, there's a whole different timeline to asking for funding and you have to be really on it really soon. Um, so our show in February, I just started to introduce the idea last July. So I had already known we needed to do a show in February. So it took a while, you know, for all of that to happen, but I think that's what I'm really grateful for. And, um, some of the lessons that I've learned about strategic planning is that if you don't know what you want to do in a year, it's really hard to get the funding for that because you have to ask now. So, you know, I think that's one of the things. Um, another thing is in high school, I did so much graphic design and that's allowed me to really put a good pitch deck together. Even if it's maybe the content itself is sometimes missing information, it, it, I make sure I make it look really it looks good. good. <laughs> uh, um, and that's been a thing that I think has paid off really well. Um, another weird part of my skill set of like going into Photoshop and designing all the graphics um, is is really helpful. So, you know, I guess in terms of funding these projects, every one is different, but, you know, we've really learned to lean into the partnerships and to, you know, trust those other organizations to help us out. And I think thus far, it's been a really mutual, uh, mutually beneficial relationship between us and other organizations because we're able to provide them something that they wouldn't have otherwise. And we're also able to do our work. And I think that's the key is like, we're not out there to just, you know, take other people's infrastructure and use it for our own work. It's like, we do want to really develop these key community partnerships that are going to help us grow, but also they're going to benefit the community as well. Mm. I mean, you sound super resourceful and, and what a, what a training ground for producing stuff because you know, when you, when you know how to get the money and where to get it from, even at a grassroots level, it, it, it's all scalable, right? So um, super kudos to you. I looked at your website and uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you was about, uh the acrobatic design sort of foray that you've you've been through and 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 what was you know i love i love that you do about a million things at once you've gone from graphic design to directing to set design and now there's this random acrobatic design in it so tell us about that project <laughs> yeah i um that's a, another pandemic baby um of mine uh and it's funny because i kind of forget that i did that sometimes however we i had a grant uh, another grant, uh, through the school. And all I could do is buy books and software. And so I had always had a passion within set design. And I think pre pandemic, I really was into, um, acrobatic equipment design, acrobatic design, mostly because it's just such a like interesting thing to think about and draw and, and all these things. So I also decided I wanted to start working with people um, and a team of people and like really creating with people beside of me. So basically me and a few friends got together during the pandemic. Um, and we sort of established that over the course of eight weeks or so that we would develop a piece of acrobatic equipment that was original and we would use each other's skill set to really help see what this could be. Um, and I wanted to use it as a tool to like work on my hard skills of learning to 3d model and to animate so that I could show the idea that we wanted to present because I thought it would be so interesting. But 
when you're drawing a piece of acrobatic equipment on paper, it's really hard to show how it's going to be used um, or what you think of it. So I was like, the only way to do this is to figure out how to animate it, but I have no idea how to do that. So it was uh, something that allowed me to work on my skills with others and animate and all of that stuff. But the piece of equipment I think is really, I'm still to this day want to see it happen. And it's the combination of a, of a Chinese pole, like sort of an aerial cradle and a swing of sorts uh, with this kind of bridge that's above it. So it's two poles, a cradle below that's attached to the bottom of the pole and then this kind of arch bridge. So the idea is like doing a different, you know, pole disciplines with bar disciplines with the catcher flyer aspect of a cradle with the swinging element. Um, and I think it's like something that for me, it was really tough because acrobatic equipment, you can easily get into the like, oh, we just made something look different, even though it's the same apparatus that we're, you know, had been using for a hundred years. But I think this for me, I was like really intrigued by the new possibilities it provided, you know, and that's not regarding all of the resources and safety and all of that that it would take to actually produce this piece of equipment. However, I think like just the idea of even the the cradle attached to the bottom of a pole and a suspended pole in the air is an idea that could be there, you know. So there's a lot of things that I've thought about that. And, and occasionally I'll write down other ideas. <laughs> so I have a little notebook um, that probably has a hundred different things, some of which I'm sure are really terrible, <laughs> but some of which one day, you know, I might want to see if I can make. And in our company, I made sure that I wrote it into our like three or five year plan that when we do start revenue generating, I, I want to be a company that is developing new, you know, acrobatic ideas to contribute to the the larger community. Because for me, I think that's kind of what I want to do in my bigger lifespan is, is make those contributions that people for years will use, hopefully. You don't seem like a shy person, but uh, <laughs> for people out there that are kind of starting or want to reach out to people or in general, like, what is your, like, you, you just reach out to people and what's the ratio of people willing to help and not help and how do you take a no versus a yes or how often do you expect someone to say yes to whatever you're pitching out, whether it's a friend asking for a friend to help you design an apparatus or getting funding or an artist coming on board with your crazy idea of something they haven't done. You know, it's a really, it's a great question. And I, my first like instinct of an answer is that it's never a yes or no is like what I've learned a lot of times. You have to be ready and really just open to listen to people. And I think that's how we found a really great path because sometimes you go in and you have a project and you just really want to make it happen, but you go to somebody and you pitch it and their answer isn't no, but their answer also isn't yes, let's do this. And I think you have to go, okay, you know, and listen, you know, they might go, well, if we do this and what if you partner with this people, then we could do this. And you never know where that could lead. So it's, I think about, you know, reaching out is one part of it, but I think really truly listening when you do reach out is the other part. Because if whatever they're telling you and you come back, it's really easy. And, I, and I'm subject to this too, of getting caught in like the, oh, well, they didn't instantly say yes to my idea. So like, it's not going to happen. And it's like, no, 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 no. You have to just, it's not a thing against you. It's more of like, you have to really listen to what they're saying because there's a reason why it's not. And, and I think often 
other people have their own ideas and you also have to let them into your idea too. Um, because that's super important because people want a sense of ownership, even if they're not the creative lead or something like everybody should take ownership in the project so that it's fulfilling for everybody. And I think, you know, you have to truly listen so that you make sure that that happens. Um, but I think for me, like I go through spells where I kind of think I'm just struck by lightning in a way where like, I'm like, I should call up every foundation in Greensboro. And it's something that like, if you, if I had to do right now, I would not do <laughs> like, <laughs> it's not something I want to do, but there's just times when your brain kind of gets this itch to do something and you know that it's for a reason. And I think like, for me, that's one of the, the things I kind of trust that when I'm starting to think of things and like, Oh, let me just like go with this and see where it leads. Um, and you kind of give up all of the care about, you know, what people are going to say in that moment. Um, and then later you look back and you go, you know, you can't believe you were doing that. But I think, I think like that's maybe my, uh, secret, if you want to call it. <laughs> that's your <laughs> superpower, my friend. Yeah. That's your superpower. Yeah. Just get out there and do, and figure it out. I love it. And I think the other thing that's interesting, though, because, you know, I've been in that space before, and one of the things is, like, I think there's a delicate balance between listening to feedback but also standing up for what your vision is, you know, and, and that's a, you know, because sometimes the people that are going to give you money aren't really understanding you know letting that balloon go is going to have an impact guys just trust me you know what i mean like do you find right do you find that there's a balance between listening and sort of you know seeding a vision for them and trying to convince them like how does that work yeah i mean for me it's the listening but that doesn't mean you have to take everything they say into like and put it into action and i think just for me what's been the biggest help is making sure my pitch is better planned because if you go from them day one and you give them all the reasons why this is going to be the thing that's going to sell them over. But if you come in and you're not as prepared with all of those things, then it's going to open the door for them to question and want to know. And I think that's been a huge thing of mine is making sure it's a lot more thorough. I think all my work and all my projects that I am thinking of right now that are being pitched, they're a lot more thorough in their impact and in their reasons why than my other previous projects have been. And I think that's for the sake of getting people sold on the idea. And there's always like little things that, oh, well, we can do this, but we might have to do it this way. Uh, but I think, yeah, it's, it's a good point of like, when you do believe in something, you should, and I think it was Deborah Brown who said this is like, or mentioned this maybe, is like when you do, like when you have the image in your brain and you can see it, you, it's never going to do you wrong. And I really like that because it, it allows you to really trust what you see and go for it. And I think, frankly, like I am really stubborn. <laughs> um, and in projects, I remember, you know, I had one project last summer where it was a little bit having like tension with our partner organization. But in the end, I picked my battle of what I wanted to. And it was more of a creative thing of just like, you know, I knew where the end goal was going to lead and, and I could see that vision. And, you know, sometimes you have to work through it just to get there. But if you really believe in it, I don't think it'll lead you wrong. And I think, you know, especially creatively, sometimes being stubborn is the best way. Um, because when you're doing something new, people aren't always open. Like you said, it's like people don't always get it. And, you know, that's part of it, which is kind of a fun aspect of our field, I think. Yeah. 
But I think you brought up a good point in the fact that it's about giving them the information that they're seeking rather than selling the idea. Because sometimes it's not about the creative idea, but getting them a framework that they understand what you're doing, right? And and I've done that in situations where you're like, I don't think we gave them enough information to sign on to this or get behind it, right? And it's not about the creative idea. It's about the structure or the timeline or the the people involved or what that you actually need from that entity, right? And 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 what are you asking for? And those things, I think it's amazing that if you're getting out there and doing it often enough, then you hone that skill. Like you said, you got better, you're getting better at, at what you need to put in front of a client or a funder or, a, you know, grant entity to, 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 to nail what you're, uh, the funding you're trying to get, right? Right. And, you know, it's a good point. And I think the same thing is true about creation and that, I, I kind of have this thing that I say where if something's not going well in a creation, like in terms of the piece, I like tell the artist, it's not always what you think might be wrong or needs to be fixed. You know, like what we think might not be working. It might be because of the sound or because of the, like the light might be a little too dim here or the costume just needs to be changed. It doesn't mean that we have to change everything that we've worked on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I think it's the same in like a business pitch. It's really that like, just because they might, People might say something about one aspect of it, but it might be because of a different thing that they're thinking that or they're perceiving something about your project. So I think it is like a way to, you know, really don't jump to any conclusions super quick, but also to like really look at the whole, you know, and figure out what it's what it's giving the the audience that you're selling to, you know, and it's kind of that point, you know, of like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's super cool. So what would you say is your favorite thing about your job or the industry? For me, when I get to that, okay, like my favorite time is when we've pitched a project, like 70% of the work that I do is producing because it kind of has to be. But it's when we get into day one and we have the artist in a room and we have the idea, right? Like the idea for a show is there, but the what it's going to be is not there at all. Like that's my favorite favorite time where we have the idea but we have no idea what it's going to be and you get to just explore with the artists and and learn the artists um and who they are and meet them in creation i think that's like the payoff for me honestly once we start knowing the show it's not as <laughs> not as um exciting to me <laughs> uh, but i'm learning that about myself and that like it's that initial period of creation for me that's the big the big love of of what i do and it's why like when i'm you know, going a month or two with just doing computer work, I can sustain through that because there's that glimmer of like what we get in the end, which is to be able to create um, that I really love. That's a super good answer. And if you could change one thing about your job or the industry, what would it be? I feel like I only have an answer that's going to be like still not a thing that I would really change, but it's really hard to say because I think anything that I would want to change, I'd be a little scared to change you know, the U.S., I think, has some things that I wish were different, especially in the way that the audience perceives the idea of circus. But I don't necessarily think that it's a bad thing because it gives us the sort of anonymity we need to kind of do whatever we want. And I do like that. <laughs> I think it's just people being more open to new things and ideas is one of my big things. You know, if like if it wasn't so hard to convince people and to really pull out of them that this is going to be a thing that we can do and it's going to be successful, 
then I think we'd be doing a lot more. But a lot of our time, I think, is spent just like getting people to kind of be open to an idea, you know, and that's for me, maybe one of the things. Um, and I think it's because in other forms of arts and entertainment, we have so much um, like precedent that's set, whether it's within ballet or opera or theater. So the idea of really coming in and just messing with all of that, I think people are very hesitant to, or also, you know, it could be, it's like the same ideas that, well, if you've done something that works for so long, you know, why do anything else? And I think that's another thing of like being open um, because it could blow everything else out of the water. So maybe that's the only thing I would change, but I really don't, I do love this sort of life in this world. <laughs> so even for all of the, the, the negative or the bad, like I was just in Mexico city. This is kind of really relates to this idea that I'm thinking of, but I was like looking at the the whole city from our window and up close, like in front of me, I could see the really ugly, like, you know, like machines on top of the buildings and just where like the dirt comes out and all these things. But then if you look past it, you see like this amazing, beautiful city. And I thought, you know, this idea that our whole life is kind of made up is beautiful, but it's made up of all these moments that are really can be sometimes ugly. Um, but that's the thing that makes up the bigger picture, you know? So I think we have to really take in that, um, that idea that, you know, on the day to day, things might not be so great every day, but like, it's the bigger whole that is going to be that beautiful thing. So that's kind of how I feel about the industry, you know, and, and the work that we do. And it's like that perspective is, is important for me. Um, so it's, it's kind of a cop-out answer, but that's kind of why it's a cop-out answer. <laughs> no, it's not a cop-out answer. In fact, I love that perspective because I often think about that, you know, and it's a wonderful metaphor to see, you know, you said that there's a beautiful city beyond that. And it's about choosing to look at the beautiful part of that image rather than the, 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 you know, the, the building site that it might be in front of you on the left. And, and, and definitely I identify that with that Houston, because a lot of the times I will, you know, I love photography and I love things and I will, I will frame a photo focusing on the most beautiful part of the scene and making sure that the, the things that are not so pretty are there. And, and, and especially when you look around the world, there is that, that balance. You've got to keep looking for those, those beautiful moments in the, in the in the ugly parts as well so i i appreciate that perspective and i identify with that so i don't think that's a cop out at all i think that's a wonderful <laughs> optimistic way to look at the world and your work so um, it's amazing thank you houston it's been really interesting to um meet you and hear your work and your mission and it's i'm, I'm really i'm really happy to see uh, your generation getting out there and and making this sort of stuff happen it's super good thank you for joining us today yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a pleasure and it's great to talk to you too. And and hopefully there'll be, you know, more conversation, you know, and, and Anna, good to see you again. Oh uh, my gosh, it's been a while, but yeah, uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Houston. Cool. Theater at Life is a global media site for entertainment. Memberships start at only 38 US dollars per year. You can have unlimited access to our daily published articles, including entertainment news and the writings of active industry professionals, ensuring that you are always up to date on the global happenings in the world of entertainment. Become a part of the international entertainment community and join us now at www.theaterartlife.com.